I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7, that's on page 920 if you're following along in the Bibles here in the pews. We are in week nine of a 10-week series talking about the intersection of faith and politics, so we are mercifully almost done with this. Uh, And we're continuing on just sort of uh, dealing with some different texts that get at that intersection and how it is that we as Christians can faithfully engage in that process that we call politics, and we'll continue that this morning. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, which he did not plant but which he knew of and uh, wanted to connect with. And so this is what Paul writes to the church back then as well as to us today. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, this is what it says. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority which God has not established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against that which God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of those in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, I was talking with my neighbor recently about winterizing our sprinkling systems. That, by the way, is how you officially know you're a suburbanite. When you find yourself talking about things like winterizing sprinkling systems and being interested in it. Anyway, he's got kind of an interesting setup. Uh, That's because along with his yard, he actually owns the property behind both of our houses that runs down to Buck Creek. And so as a result, that's where he gets the water for his sprinklers. Rather than pay the city for water, he pumps it out of the creek. It's nice, he said. Uh, I get to run my sprinklers for just the cost of electricity. What he told me isn't nice, though, is taking the pump out of the creek each fall. You see, he can't leave it in during the winter. If he does, it'll freeze and break. And so each October, as part of his winterization process, he has to actually go down into the creek, pull the pump out, and drain it. I can't stand doing it, he said. Uh, It's just the worst job. But it's also one of those things that you just gotta do. Well, truth be told, that's actually kind of how I feel about this sermon this morning, which is always a good note to start on. Right? You see, when you preach on faith and politics, or at least when you do it for 10 long weeks, there are certain texts that you just have to deal with. Uh, for instance, uh, right towards the start of this series, we talked about Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, the famous render unto Caesar what is Caesar's passage. And that's one of these texts that you have to deal with when you talk about faith and politics. I would argue that the text that we looked at two weeks ago, Deuteronomy 17, and the guidelines, the qualifications that it gives for a king, That's another one. 
And this one is one too. Put simply, you can't preach on faith and politics without at some point getting to Romans 13. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Romans 13 and what the Apostle Paul says about Christians submitting to the authorities. Now, I actually said this when we looked at Mark chapter 12 too, the render unto Caesar what is Caesar's passage, but I've seen just about every interpretation imaginable for Romans 13. Depending on who you are, who you're reading, and what perspective you take, you can make Romans 13 mean just about anything you want it to. For instance, and this is admittedly an extreme case, but this is the passage that certain wings of the German church used to justify their support for the Nazis in the run-up to World War II. Paul Actemeyer summarizes the history in his commentary when he writes, is the Christian under obligation to support whatever policies the governing authorities may deem appropriate? That was the interpretation given of this passage in the late 30s and 40s by a group within the Protestant church in Germany who for nationalistic reasons called themselves German Christians. By means of this passage, they justified their claim that Christians owed allegiance to Adolf Hitler. For further support, they cited Luther's interpretation of this passage. Luther had written, Christians should not refuse under the pretext of religion to obey men, especially evil ones. Is that in fact, what this passage means, Actemeyer asks. Does Paul here place on Christians the obligation to obey all edicts of whatever government happens to hold civil power over them? In a word, the answer is no, but that is what some people claim. They argue Romans 13 is a blanket passage that prohibits Christians under any circumstances from questioning, criticizing, disobeying, or demonstrating against the government. It's kind of like the biblical version of the bumper sticker, America, love it or leave it. That's basically how some people use this passage. But if that's not what Paul is saying here, okay, if he's not offering a blanket affirmation of government and telling Christians to blindly support whatever authorities happen to be in power over them, then what is he saying? Well, in the simplest of terms, Paul is saying two basic things. First, he's saying that while every specific individual instance or example of government might not be good, and even good governments might sometimes make bad decisions or pass bad laws, government in general is good. Government as a whole, government as an idea, government as part of human society and civilization is a good thing. That's the first thing Paul is saying here. And then second, he's saying that as a result, because government is good, Christians should, in general, submit to our governments. We'll get to some exceptions later, but that's the gist of what Paul is saying here. Government in general is good, and Christians ought to submit to it. And he's saying that for two main reasons, okay? First, government is part of God's good created order. Government is part of God's good created order. That's really what Paul is getting at in the first two verses of this text. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. What Paul is doing here, right at the start of this passage, and he actually does this a couple of times in his letter to the Romans, is he's appealing back to the creation account in Genesis 1. 
He's saying this is the way God made the world. This is the way he designed it. This is the way he established it. He established his world with certain things as part of it, certain things that hold his creation together, certain things that keep it going, certain things that are meant to be part of it. And one of those things, Paul says, one of the things that God established in his creation that he meant to be part of it that helps hold it all together is government. You see, one of the major themes of Genesis 1 is the theme of God creating order out of chaos. Let's just go there. If you still have your Bibles out, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're just going to take a look at this a little bit, all right? There's obviously a lot going on in Genesis chapter 1, and obviously a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about Genesis chapter 1, especially how to interpret it scientifically. For our purposes this morning, though, what I really want us to see is the structure or design of Genesis 1. You see, when you read Genesis 1, one of the main things that becomes apparent pretty quickly is that it mirrors itself. There are two halves to Genesis 1, and they parallel each other. They match each other. They mirror each other almost perfectly. Here's what I mean. Genesis 1 starts this way. The first two verses, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Keep those two words in mind. Formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The words for formless and empty there in the Hebrew are the words tohu vabohu, and what they literally mean is empty to the point of lacking order, void of structure or organization, absent of form or shape. And so what Genesis 1 is telling us right off the bat is that when God started creating, the earth was lacking in shape, lacking in structure, lacking in form and organization. In other words, it was pure chaos. That's how the creation account in Genesis 1 starts. It starts in chaos until God starts creating. Because once God starts creating, he starts bringing order, structure, organization into that chaos. Genesis 1 verses 3 through 5, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So day one, God creates light and then he separates that light from the darkness. He brings order, structure, and organization to it and in the process, he creates our units of time, day and night and then from there, God just keeps going. He keeps introducing more and more order and structure into his world. Day two, he separates the waters and creates the sea and the sky. Day three, he separates the water from the dry ground and creates land and plants and then he starts working his way back and mirroring it all. That's because day four, he goes back to the light and he creates the, creates the sources of light, the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he goes back to the sea and sky and creates sea creatures and birds. And then day six, he goes back to the land and he creates animals and people. You see how it mirrors itself? Day one mirrors day four. Day two mirrors day five. Day three mirrors day six. They connect together. Regardless of whatever else you may think about Genesis chapter 1, one of the main things it's saying is that God is a God of order. He is not a God of chaos. He brings structure, form, and shape out of chaos. That's what he did in the beginning, 
It's what he does now in our lives through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it's what one day he will do in his creation as a whole again. And so Paul's point in our passage for this morning in Romans 13 is that government is part of this created order. That's the imagery that's going on in this text in Romans 13. Paul is appealing to Genesis 1 in this text and he's telling us God is a God of order. God is a God of structure. God is a God of organization. And so God established human government just like he established everything else in creation in order to maintain that order, to maintain that structure, to maintain that organization so that his creation wouldn't fall into disrepair and disarray. As N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary here, Christians are called to believe that the civic authorities, great and small, are there because the one true God wants his world to be ordered, not chaotic. So that's the first reason Paul tells Christians to submit to the government. He tells us to submit to the government because government is part of God's original, good, intended, designed creation. The second reason Paul tells Christians to submit to the government, though, is because it provides a light and a witness to the gospel. That's really what Paul is getting at in verses two through five here with all his talk about rebelling, doing right, not wrong, and submitting to the government as a matter of conscience. You see, there were at least some Christians uh, in the early church who believed that they no longer had to submit to the government. The reason they believed they no longer had to submit to the government uh, was because they believed that they now had an authority higher than the government. Uh, Put simply, they reasoned, if Christ is our king, if he's our Lord, if he's our ascended ruler reigning over all things, then we no longer have to submit to our earthly governments because we've got a heavenly authority who rules over even them. And so as a result, some Christians in the early church decided to stop recognizing the authority of their, of their earthly governments. They stopped paying taxes, stopped obeying laws, and stopped participating in pump public institutions and practices. The problem, though, was that other people, non-believers, pagans, started to notice that. And while the majority of Christians didn't stop submitting to the government, the fact that some did was starting to get the early church a bit of a reputation. People were starting to see Christians as disorderly, disruptive, and even potentially seditious. And that was having an effect on the gospel. It was getting the gospel a bad rap. After all, as Christians, we claim to have good news, right? Good news about God, good news about ourselves as human beings, and good news about how we as human beings can be in relationship with God again. And yet here were some Christians acting in ways that were anything but good. They were disregarding authority, disobeying the government, and generally looking like people who promoted chaos more than they promoted Jesus Christ. And Paul was concerned about that. As an apostle, he wants to make sure Christians bring glory and honor to God and credibility to the gospel, not disrepute. As he says in 2 Corinthians 2, Christians need to spread the aroma of the knowledge of God everywhere. And so Paul wants to make sure that that aroma is pleasing to people and that it brings them to faith, not so repugnant that it turns them away, which was what was happening at the time. And so that's the second reason Paul tells Christians to submit to the government. 
Not only is government part of God's good, ordered creation, the way he designed his world to be, but submitting to the government is also part of our witness as Christians. Now, at this point, I think it's fair to ask, okay, so we're supposed to submit to the government, but are there any exceptions to that? In other words, are there any times or circumstances where a government might become so bad or do such bad things that Christians might need to choose not to submit to it? And I think the answer is yes, but I also think we need to be really, really careful about that. After all, as Douglas Moo says in his commentary on this passage, most of us read this text within the tradition of the democracies of the 20th century. We are accustomed to governments elected by the people, following certain broad humanitarian guidelines in their laws and procedures, and susceptible to pressure brought on them by ordinary citizens. All this is completely foreign to Paul's context. That's a really important point. I almost can't emphasize enough how important that is because the fact is that the world that Paul lived and existed in is worlds different from the one that we do today. And so was the government that he lived under. Keep in mind that Paul is writing to uh, Christians today or in, in this text who live in the capital city of the world's largest and most powerful empire in history, which at the time was ruled by a a dictator. It's also the empire, by the way, that has crucified Paul's Lord and Savior and that by this time was also uh, sporadically persecuting his brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet Paul is telling those Christians that they need to submit to the government. Moo says it well, I think, when he writes, Christians who still live under autocratic and even repressive regimes can probably appreciate what Paul is teaching here better than those of us who have never had to live in that kind of atmosphere. Okay, so the point is we have to be really careful when we start talking about exceptions to submitting to or obeying the government because the fact is we live in a society and political context these days that is so different in good ways from the one Paul knew that he probably couldn't have even imagined it, okay? And yet, I do think there are exceptions. I think they're few and far between, but I do think that they exist. At least there are exceptions when it comes to Christians obeying the government. You see, Paul is pretty careful with his word choice here. He tells us that Christians need to be subject to or submit to the government. In Greek, the word for that is hypotasso, which literally means to come under or see yourself under some kind of authority. He does not, however, tell us that we need to obey those authorities. The Greek word for that is hypokuo, and there's a difference. Now, before you start calling me an anarchist who's telling you that you don't need to obey the government, That is not what I'm saying, and that is not what Paul is saying either. Of course we need to obey the authorities. That's that's actually Paul's whole point here, right? Government was established by God as part of his good uh, ordered creation, and submitting to and obeying the government is part of our Christian calling and part of our Christian witness. But there is a difference between those two things, submitting and obeying, and that difference is important. Again, as Moo says in his commentary, In demanding submission to the state, Paul is not necessarily demanding obedience to every mandate of the state. 
Key to this restriction is the recognition that the word submit, hippotasso in Paul, is not a simple equivalent to obey, hippokuo. To be sure, they overlap, and in some contexts, perhaps, they cannot be distinguished. Moreover, submission is usually expressed through obedience. So most of the time, I would say like 99.9% of the time, our submission to earthly authorities will also mean that we obey them. But, Mu continues, nevertheless, submission is broader and more basic than obedience. To submit is to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy established by God. It is to acknowledge that certain institutions or people have been placed over us and have the right to our respect and deference. But implicit always in the idea of submission is the need to recognize that God is at the pinnacle of any hierarchy. He is at the top. While not always explicit, Paul assumes that one's ultimate submission must be to God and that no human being can ever stand as the ultimate authority for a believer. What that means is that in general, we need to submit to our governing authorities. That goes for the governing authorities that we like as well as the ones that we don't. Very simply, as Christians, we are called to submit to them. Most of the time, that also means that we will obey them. Again, the exceptions here are going to be very few and far between. But if and when there comes a time when our earthly authorities come into conflict with our submission to God, then, and only then, may we choose to disobey them. Scripture itself actually gives us examples of that, right? For instance, you've got the Israelite midwives, Shipra and Pua in Exodus 1, Rahab in Joshua 2, and Peter and John before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. All of those are examples of believers choosing to obey God over and above what their earthly authorities are telling them to do. But again, we have to be very, very careful with that. Like I said, those instances are few and far between, and we have to be absolutely sure that they are warranted. As Actemeyer says in his commentary, such a decision about disobeying governing authorities cannot legitimately be based on personal desires or personal advantage. In other words, our personal preferences for what we want to see the government do or not do does not justify potentially disobeying it. The government simply doing something we don't like or making decisions we disagree with or even allowing something that we think is wrong is not necessarily grounds to disobey it. Instead, Actemeyer says that decision to do that, to disobey the government, needs to be based on one thing and one thing alone, and that's Scripture. He writes, how does one decide at what point a government has passed from the ranks of God's servants to the ranks of his opponents? On that matter, this passage gives no specific advice. That decision will have to be reached on the basis of the larger content of this letter and indeed the whole of the Bible. In other words, what he's saying there is that it needs to be clear from Scripture as a whole that a government has crossed the line and is actively causing us to disobey God. Then and only then may we consider disobeying the government, if obeying the government means disobeying God. And even then, Paul says we still have to do so with respect. You see, disagreement and disobedience are one thing, Disrespect is another. As Christians, there may be times when we disagree with our government or rare though they may be, disobey our government, but even then we may never 
be disrespectful. After all, as Paul writes at the end of this passage, give to everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. What Paul is saying there is that while we might not like our governments, while we might not appreciate or have voted for some of our leaders, and while, while we may not agree with or support some of their policies, we may never disrespect them. We may never dishonor our leaders. Instead, we must always uphold our responsibility to give them what they're due, including the respect and honor that they are owed as those who lead us. To be honest, I've thought about that a lot with our last two presidents. Um, As you all know, because I told you a few weeks ago, I did not vote for either President Trump or President Biden. And I'll admit, because I didn't vote for them, I myself have struggled with this calling to respect and honor them. But simply, I think both of them have deep character flaws and have made some pretty poor decisions. And so there have been times that I have slipped into talking and thinking about them in ways that are dishonoring and disrespectful, and that is wrong. That is something that I need to repent of. And yet, I've been taken aback by the sheer level of disrespect and dishonor that they have both received, especially in Christian circles. For instance, I remember when President Trump was first elected, uh, there was actually a whole meme that went around social media at the time, not my president. You remember that? That was kind of a, maybe you're not on Twitter, I don't know. That was kind of a hashtag that was trending, not my president. There were basically whole swaths of people in our country who refused to acknowledge Trump as president, often in sneering and condescending terms. And to be honest, that's about all I can say about that because if I were to repeat some of those sneering and condescending terms that I heard from the pulpit, I would probably be permanently banned from the pulpit, okay? That's how bad it got. The insults and antagonism that some people, including some Christians, directed at President Trump were, to put it lightly, nothing short of reprehensible. And yet, now that we have a different president in office from the other party, President Biden, the same thing is happening. For instance, a couple weeks ago, I was driving down the road and I saw a bumper sticker on the back of a car. It said, pray for Biden, Psalm 109, verse 8. Just in case you're not familiar with that verse, this is what Psalm 108.9 says. I'll be honest, I didn't expect laughs here, actually. Um, It says, may his days be few, may another take his place of leadership. But in context, it actually goes quite a bit further. Because in context, what it says is, may his days be few, may another take his place of leadership, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow, may his children be wandering beggars and may they be driven from their ruined homes, may a creditor seize all he has, may strangers plunder the fruits of his labor, may no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children, may his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. Now again, I'm not a fan of Joe Biden. I didn't vote for him, I don't like his policies, and I think he's made a number of pretty serious mistakes in office. But David is praying for the death of his enemies in that psalm. Just think about that for a moment. Okay, when people say to pray that for Joe Biden, that's what they're saying, they're telling us to pray for his death. And that's wrong too. 
Because again, whether we agree with them or not, we are called to respect and honor our leaders. That's what we are called to do as Christians. We may not agree with our leaders. We may even occasionally have to disobey them, but we may not disrespect them because doing so is unbecoming of a Christian. It is unbecoming of Christ. And it is unbecoming of the gospel, which again is the very thing that Paul was concerned about when he first wrote this passage. So where does all this leave us? It leaves us here. As Christians, we are called to submit to our earthly governments. We are called to do so for at least two reasons. First, government is part of God's good, ordered creation. And second, submitting to the government is part of our witness to the gospel. Submitting to the government means obeying the government. There are exceptions to that but they are few and far between, and they are only justified when obeying the government causes us to disobey God. And even then, we still need to do so with respect. Again, doing so provides a light and a witness to the good news of the gospel. And what is that good news? What is that gospel? At its simplest, it's this. We are all of us rebellious citizens who have disobeyed, rebelled against, and disrespected our king. But rather than punish us, rather than make us pay what we owed, rather than give us the death sentence we deserved, God transferred our guilt to his son. He paid the penalty. He paid the price and he died in our place so that we didn't have to. His name is Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and Savior, and because of him we have been reconciled to God our King. As citizens of that King, then, let's live in the way that he has called us to. Submitting to our earthly authorities, respecting and honoring them, and in so doing, providing a light and a witness to the good news that tells us who our true king really is. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, you made this world good. We unmade this world with our sin. And yet you have given us glimpses of your grace, reminders of the good ordered world that you created. Government is one of those reminders. And though it doesn't always look the way we want, though it doesn't always function the way you intended, though it doesn't always work out the way that it would if this world had never fallen into sin, you use our earthly governments to hold back the waters and darkness of chaos. Thank you for giving us governing authorities. Help us to choose good leaders when we have the opportunity to do so. And help us, whether we always agree with them or not, to submit to them and show our leaders the sort of respect and honor that they deserve. In other words, help us to live as your people in a way that demonstrates to this world that we are different. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.